Alright, welcome everyone. Episode 73 of the Matt Jones Podcast. Uh, another exciting day here in New York City, but I can't, you know, it's weird. Every time something big happens in Kentucky, for some reason I'm gone. So like the biggest events in Louisville the last five years, probably the biggest one since the, all these protests was the Muhammad Ali funeral, and I happen to be gone then as well. It's like all these events gets uh, end up taking place right when I get out of town. I'll try not to act like there's any symbolism in that. But I want to talk to somebody who is one of my favorite people and who lives there in Louisville, Ricky Jones. He's a professor of, is it Pan-African Studies? Is that how the, the department's called, Ricky? That's correct, Pan-African. That's all African. Yeah, yes. Pan-African Studies. Uh, at University of Louisville, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Anytime for you, brother. You know that. You're one of my well, favorite dudes. Well, thank you. Well, let me start since you say that anything for me, by reading what you put out, some of what you put out on Twitter last night. And you wrote, to all of you coming at me about race right now, I'm cool with helping, but I'm not Harry Potter. You said that on my show. I do not have a magic wand. I'm not seeking the mantle of leadership of Black Louisville, so I'm not inclined to be at every protest, press conference, or opine on every single happening. I'm consistent. I've been here talking about these issues forever and a day. And then you say other things as well. But I found that very interesting because I'll be honest with you, Ricky, when all this was going on and, and, and you and I talk a lot, you and I don't just talk when something happens, but I sort of wondered why I hadn't seen you out at some of that stuff. Explain maybe in more detail why you haven't. Well, I, I want to be very clear. I'm not anti-protest, you know, and I've said that protests are actions to dramatize issues, to bring attention to issues. But I've been doing this work for a very long time. And I've been talking about race for a very long time, race, politics, and culture. And you and I have had those conversations for years as well, uh, Matt. And so, you know, I felt, felt and feel that it's best for me to continue to do the stuff that I've been doing for years. You know, I've already been speaking to it. So I don't, I don't feel like I have to necessarily change anything that I've done or been doing. You know, it's up to people to pay attention to it if they really want to learn. Because... You know, my concern, man, is is that this is another fad moment for for a lot of folk, where they've seen an atrocity that happened in in Minneapolis, which which was make no mistake an atrocity. But that stuff happens all the time, and people haven't listened, they haven't paid attention to it. But what is more troubling to me, as people put out all these statements on race, you know, from corporations to universities, you know, I, I worry that this is just going to be a fad moment that um, and, and, and they'll move on in the next few weeks. And I won't, I'll still be doing the same work. So there's two cases on that. And I, I wonder the same thing. So like one case would say exactly what you said. We've had these issues before, Ferguson, Eric Garner, even going back, Diallo in New York. I mean, you can name a lot of them. I'm sure you could name more than me, Tamir Rice, et cetera. And we do move on and very little changes. The second argument would be though, maybe this is a little different. You're seeing a different level of acceptance. I was talking to Mina Kimes on my show yesterday. We're talking about how, like, just use the phrase Black Lives Matter. A few years ago, to a lot of white people, that was a controversial phrase. Now, Joe Biden put it in, a, in his latest presidential ad, and I don't think he feels any potential repercussions for that. To me, that is a change. And it does 
feel like it's reached a different level in terms of like it's extended beyond just liberal folks saying it to maybe the center has moved a little bit. Is that possible or do you think that's just being naive and hopeful? Well, you've always been naive and hopeful. You know how you are, man. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> I'm hopeful. I don't know that I, you have to say I'm naive. I'm hopeful. <laughs> I, I, I think, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think that's an overstatement that is it's not controversial anymore. I mean, because if you pay attention to what's going on, um, you have that from Joe Biden. And Joe Biden, by the way, who set at the heart of, of criminal justice reform earlier in his career. Joe Biden, who was anti-busing earlier in his career. Joe Biden, who belongs to a party, that party being the Democratic Party, that pays very little attention to the African-American community outside of soliciting its votes. So I think that has to be said. So it makes sense, not just for Joe Biden right now. You know, you, you remember that old saying that Martin Luther King Jr. said it. You don't judge a man by where he stands in times of convenience, right? That's, that's not how you judge his courage, but where he stands in times of controversy. Right now, it's not controversial to, to talk about race and how African-Americans have been persecuted, disregarded, and killed in this country. That is actually the in vogue thing to do right now. So I'm not impressed by Joe Biden releasing a statement with Black Lives Matter in it. One, but, I'm not, but Ricky, I'm not talking about Joe Biden. I'm not. It's just point. in general. But I was just speaking to it. But let me get to the next point, and it's a central point. If people pay attention, the hashtag All Lives Matter was trending just the other day, which is a pushback to Black Lives Matter. So if anybody thinks that there's some wholesale white acceptance of the fact that Black people have been mistreated in this country. That's just not true. You know, that's that's a warm, fuzzy, um, um, you know, pronunciation, but it, it's, it's just not true. So there's still there's certainly some white brothers and sisters who've been on board and many of them have always been on board. Let me add. But, but there are some others who still do not give a damn and others who are, who are actively pushing back. I guess what I meant by that, well, let me, that, that brings me to a different point. So you mentioned Joe Biden and I'm only talking about Joe Biden because he's running for president. I'm not a specific, you know, what I'm saying though, is the election, if you assume 90% of the people in this country have made up their mind and then elections are about going for the 10% in the middle or the 10% undecided. I do think it's telling that people believe those 10% now can be won over with a message that is still a Black Lives Matter message. I don't think that would have been true four years ago or eight years ago. But I wanna mention what you said about Biden. You brought up the stuff he did early in his career and this comes up today with Drew Brees who apologized for his statement yesterday about the, the movement. Do you think when people, if the, let's assume you believe their sincerity that if Joe Biden looks back and he has said this and says, I was wrong about that crime legislation. And Drew Brees says, you know what? I was wrong about what I said yesterday. Do you believe that there's a place for forgiveness in those scenarios? And if so, for you, what does it take? Well, first of all, let me, let me say that I elaborated on Joe Biden just because his name was brought up and he put Black Lives Matter in, in you know, some of his publicity. I don't give a damn about Joe Biden, okay? Let me, let me be clear about that. Um, you know, all the arguments, and, and I'm glad we have a longer form here so I can develop my thoughts a little bit better. All the arguments that the Democrats and others make that, you know, are, are we, no matter what, we have to get rid of, we have to defeat Donald Trump. And I said stuff before Ahmaud Arbery was killed, before Breonna Taylor was killed, before George Floyd was killed. 
that for black people in this country, their primary goal should not be to get rid of Donald Trump. Their primary goal in everything that they do, politically, socially, economically, educationally, across the board, is to get rid of white supremacy, okay? So, so I, I want to be clear about that. So all these Democrats who make this argument, we just got to get rid of Donald Trump. If you're not paying attention to the issues that are important to my community, you know, I'm not, that, that's, that's a bad argument. Okay, and moving on to, to what else you're saying about forgiveness. Look, man, you know me, man. My, I was raised by my grandmother, you know, and my grandmother was a very, very religious woman. And she, you know, June 1st, a few days ago, was the 11th anniversary of her death. And she used to tell me that, look, we all need too much forgiveness to not grant it to others if they request it. So I'm not sitting around trying to be some petty person holding on to something that Joe Biden did forever ago. If he learned from it and he can move forward and he can be a viable person who's trying to help people be more humane and, and, and decent, that's cool. I'm not even trying to hold something against Drew Brees. I, I find it in interesting that after everything has gone on, Colin Kaepernick ended up on the right side of history. Now, you and I talked about it while it was going on, while it was popping off and everybody was going crazy about the national anthem and this is a disrespectful to the flag and disrespectful to the troops. That was always a false argument. It was always a false argument. And so I find it troubling. And, I, and, and you see Drew Brees' teammates, you know, from Malcolm Jenkins to Michael Thomas, who is Drew Brees' bread and butter right now, right? They find it troubling. I mean, Michael Thomas says of his quarterback, he don't know no better. That's a hell of a thing. So it, it is a trip that after everything that's happened, Drew Brees was still holding on to that false argument, which means that he really, really is, is kind of being intellectually stubborn. But that doesn't mean that Drew Brees doesn't have the capacity to grow. And you see that he released an apology this morning. And so hopefully that's a titular moment for him where he can try to move forward. So let's go back to the Kaepernick thing, because I remember the old, the conversations and you and I had them in, in the moment and the conversations would go something like this. Your argument was sort of the argument that, that was probably in hindsight, correct, which was, look, this is, he's standing up uh, for his beliefs in this it has nothing to do with the flag, et cetera. And I agreed with you 97% of the way I, I was 3% stopping going Ricky, the only thing is, to me, this is counterproductive. He will lose people that would otherwise be on his, on his side because in people's minds, they will do what Drew Brees did and conflate the two. And you would say something to the effect of, well, that's not his problem, that's their problem. And I was sort of looking at it as, what is the best way to win people over? And you were looking at it as, I think, you tell me if I'm wrong, that he's doing what he, he believes is right. And who are you, Matt Jones, to tell him not to do that? Mm -hmm. I probably have come over to the side, to your side in the last three or four years, because I wouldn't want people telling me what's the best way to take up for my community. Do you think that there are a lot, are more people like me who even on that minute point have come in Kaepernick's direction? I don't know, Matt, I, I can't speak to it. I would advise people, you know, this is the second podcast that we've done together. We've been together a lot, you know, done a lot of media stuff together, but only one long form thing together. Yeah. Um, and so I would, I would advise people to go listen to that podcast again, because in a lot of ways it's, 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 it's prescient. I mean, it, it's kind of predicting the future a little bit, 
but we have a, an extended conversation about the Kaepernick situation, as you said, in the moment. To your question, I was never um, of, of, the, of the mind that, well, that's just not Kaepernick's problem or whatnot. It is Kaepernick's problem, it's the black community's problem because the black community does not have power in America. And so the black community is subjected to decision-making of white people in the country. By definition, that's what white supremacy is, right? That you, white supremacy isn't just people marching around in hoods and burning crosses in folks' yards or you know, stomping around Charlottesville protecting Confederate statues, you know, chanting Jews will not replace us. That, that's not just the manifestation of white supremacy. What was bad then and what is bad now? It is okay. I'm not as troubled by people not understanding something, that they're doing something that is offensive, that's hurtful, that's even destructive without understanding it. But what is really, really troubling, and white America has a bad problem with this, when folks bring it to your attention and you still push back and say, oh, no, that's, that's bull. Because the message that sends is, look, we have the right to offend you, to destroy you, right? And then we have the right to tell you whether you should be offended by what we've done and what we've said. And then we have the right to dictate your response to the offense and us saying you shouldn't be offended. I just don't know if any individual or group should have that much power over another group and feel comfortable in that. I think that is very, very dangerous. That's really interesting that you articulated that because you just went on like a three-step thing. And my position three or four years ago would have been including two of those steps, which was telling folks how they should respond and then also saying like, this is the, you need to sort of circumvent your actions to win over these people. Yet I never got the sense when I had that position that you were mad at me or that you felt like, you certainly didn't call me a white supremacist at the time, that you like had some sort of like that I, <laughs> why not? I mean, what, like, cause, cause I was articulating a little bit of that position and I will be honest, not with Kaepernick because I think that's a little different, but I do have that position in a lot of the world, not just about race, but about anything. The, okay, look, if you really want to win over folks, you've got to take them at their position or you're not going to win them over. I do believe that about a lot of things. You don't, but you don't get angry at me about that. Why isn't that? Well, first of all, I'm not an angry person. Two, I drink. Angry's not the word, but you know what right, I'm saying. Right. Like you, you, you know. Yeah, I know. Look, I know what you're saying, Matt. I mean, look. First of all, and people have to understand this, you know, and a lot of people don't. I mean, you know, we're friends, right? Yeah. And so we, we, and friends don't always have to agree. You and I disagree about a lot of stuff. I mean, we go at it. And so if, if you got to agree with me all the time, or I got to agree with you all the time for us to be friends, then that, that friendship is built on quicksand. So no, I don't get mad at you. I don't get mad at many people. So you don't have, but you don't have to be careful with your words with me. You know, because I, I know. What no, you're I know from. you. Do, and I appreciate that because that, that you have actually opened me up in general on that. But there's something about like, I feel like you probably think my heart's in the right place and I can say the same thing somebody else does and you look at it differently. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I think we have different approaches to the world. You know, you 
you have this idea that if you do things or say things in a particular way, you're going to win people over, right? I believe that there's a certain percentage of people that no matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter how you say it, and no matter how you do it, you're not going to win them over, right? I've just never been willing to allow people who are the offending parties to dictate tone, tenor, and tactics to me. That's, that's just my approach to the world. If people want to sit down and have a reasonable conversation, right, then I'm always open to having that conversation. I feel like I'm Muhammad Ali, man. I feel like I'm the heavyweight champion. I take all comers anytime, any place, right? Yeah, I don't know about, yeah, don't know about all that. Well, I agree with you. you. I'm telling I you how I feel, right? I mean, so I don't believe that there's some people you're going to gain any traction with. I will still talk to them. But truth, my belief is this, truth is truth, right? Truth is truth. You and your argument, and this is where we part company, you believe that somehow some folk are going to be more open to truth depending upon the packaging. I and, do believe that. Yes, I do believe that. And, that. and that's cool. I mean, that's cool. I'm, I don't push back against you on that for you. I push back against you when you want to affix that to me, right? Fair enough. Fair enough. That. That, that's all. Fair enough. Okay, so let me address what you said, because I think it's an important point. I agree with you, completely agree with you that there are some percentage of people that you, I don't care how you package it, they ain't budget. And I would argue that in all honesty, like you can be friendly with those people, but convincing them is a waste of time, you're banging your head against the wall. But I think there's a segment of people who come to, a, come to the surface disagreeing with you that if you package it correctly, you can win them over. So I always say this, if, let's just assume the country's 50-50 conservative liberal, but it doesn't even matter about politics. Just take any issue. If it's 50-50, 30% of that 50, forget it. You ain't getting them. But 20% are open to listening. And I consider all important arguments about those 20%. Like I think, and I think the same things on the other side, that that 40% of America really is how change is made. Civil rights movement took all of the work that folks did, but honestly, it took some white people changing their mind to have reforms. And if you, I do think the packaging matters about everything because ultimately you have, it's like in Kentucky, if you're a Democrat, you ain't winning unless you convince some Republicans to flip. You just aren't. So like you, the packaging matters. And okay, here's where you have to be careful. Okay. 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 You, even if I agree with you, the packaging matters. And, 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 and certainly I agree in some cases that it does, but those are the people who, who are willing to listen, right? You have to be careful, Matt Jones, in then going forward and dictating to somebody like me what the packaging should look like. Fair enough. Right? Because now that would be, I, I, would, I ain't never gonna use white supremacy with you because you my boy, but it would be stepping over into an, into a, an area of arrogance and a bit of narcissism, right? That anybody worth their salt then would push back against. Because, you know, that would be you dictating to somebody or me dictating to somebody. And see, that's why I never get mad with you and I don't try to change you. Because I'm like, 
Matt, you, 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 you're Matt. I love you because you're Matt. I don't have to agree with you. That's why it's important for us to, as equals, right? One, have conversations with one another and have conversations with other people. And I can say, look, I, I, our name, both our names is Jones. We're probably related somewhere down the line, but you can look at <laughs> us and tell that we're not the same. This is how Matt feels. This is how I feel. And then we work, you know, to, to form some synthesis. So we can't dictate to people what the packaging should look like. And you got to be intelligent enough and nimble enough quite often to go into each situation without some predetermined script. And you can switch up with the people that you're interacting with. Let me switch gears for a second and ask you, what was your initial thought the first time you saw the George Floyd video? The, the the George Floyd video, and 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 people have to understand, man. I've I've studied um, race, racism, you know, politics, culture, issues of, of of suffering and death, all my life. That was the that was one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in my life, and that's coming from a man. You know, I've seen, I've physically seen three dead bodies in my life throughout the country and have seen two people killed. The first one when I was seven years old in, in, in my housing projects in Atlanta. But watching that George Floyd video, man, that, that's something I would not let my daughter watch again. You know, um, to see this man, you gotta understand this is a 46 year old man who was reduced to an infantile state. I mean, he's crying out for his mother. You hear him repeatedly saying, mama, mama. And his mother's been dead for some time. That, that was one of the um, most blatant displays of barbarism that I've seen in, in quite some time. It, it, it was really disturbing. It, 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 it almost brought me to tears, man. I had to turn away from it. And I, I will never watch that video again. Interesting. My that happened, I think on a Monday, and the video started getting out that Monday night. And I woke up, I hadn't seen it. And I woke up the next morning, you know, Rachel, my girlfriend, she works at CBS this morning, she works through the night, right? So anything that happens at night through the night, she sees. And she was like, you need to see this video. It made me cry the first time I saw it. And I yeah. remember thinking, yeah, what makes somebody cry like that? And I was the same way. And I think it was what you're saying. I think it was the reducing what was a very large man, both in life and in physical stature, to begging for his breath. And I think the indifference on the face of the cop that we see and then the one standing, that was the most striking part to me, was this wasn't like, and I'm not excusing any of these things, but this wasn't a shooting that happened in a split second. This was, this person knew what they were doing, kept doing it, heard the cries and didn't care. And not only him, but three other people, whatever level of culpability you give them, they didn't stop it. Like that whole thing, I don't know. Like that was, that was very eye-opening to me. Were you surprised I was, were you? No. I wasn't surprised. I mean, it was shocking, you know, to see it in action, to see it happen. Eight minutes and 46 seconds 
you know, Derek Chauvin crushed the life out of, out of George Floyd while he's begging for his breath, still calling him sir. You know, Minneapolis police lie about it initially and, and say that George Floyd resisted arrest when he was initially encountered. He did not. Um, they then say that the officers realized he was suffering a medical event once he was handcuffed. Again, you know, not true. The medical event was caused by those officers. But no, I wasn't surprised, Matt. But, you know, the Floyd murder is really an allegory of what's gone on in America along lines of race, where you have people committing these acts. You have a system that is crushing the life out of black communities. And most of our white brothers and sisters in the country historically, very much like the officers, other officers who were there, they've stood around. Haven't said a thing, haven't done a thing, haven't tried to stop it. And when it's brought to their attention, quite often they haven't believed. Uh, you know, there are still people in this country, even after witnessing that, after witnessing Ahmaud Arbery down in my home state of Georgia be shot to death in the streets while, while jogging, I mean, witnessing these things. I'm setting the Breonna Taylor case aside from those two. I think they're separate types of incidents in the, in the national conscience, just because there is no video of that, right? But we've seen this, just like we saw uh, Eric Garner choke to death on Long Island, up, up where you are, near where you are right now. We saw Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old kid, shot to death in a park in Cleveland. Even after seeing these things, there's still some people that think that Black people are overstating what they, they, they go through, complaining about things, undeserving of attention, and they just don't believe them. So I don't know what it's going to take for a lot of those folks, but it's gone on for a long time in this country. So no, man, I, unfortunately, I was not surprised. So I had a former cop write me a younger former cop, so just retired in the last couple of years, and say, look, Matt, everything that you're saying about those cases is correct. I mean, they're terrible. He said, I'm not going to be naive enough to say that race doesn't factor into any of this stuff. It, it, it certainly does. But he also said, look, I think there's a lot of killing of white people as well by cops. It's more a cop thing that we just look at people who are criminals or potential criminals or alleged criminals, we just look at them as lower too often as lower than us regardless. And that I, and do you think there's any validity to that or no? What a terrible argument. No, no. I, no. This person, let me be clear, was not taking up for any of it. It was more just like I, it I is a culture that, in but, general. Yeah. No, but, 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 but he's explaining it away because statistics show in almost Every locality you look at, from the southeastern United States to the northwestern United States, black communities are policed more, more uh, heavily. Black people, black men in particular, are arrested more frequently, even when they're arrested for similar or the same crimes as whites. First of all, they're five to six more, more times more likely to be stopped and arrested. When they're arrested for the same crimes, they are prosecuted more harshly, they're charged more heavily, they're given more, more jail and prison time in the country. Even though black men are five to six percent of the population of the country, they make up almost half of the jail and prison population of the country. 
So over-policed, over-charged, over-punished consistently. Episodes of police brutality, uh, statistical research has shown, are more frequent from white officers in particular towards black people. I mean, this happens. We have black people stopped in their cars for no reason, much more frequently than whites. So we may very well have a problem that police are simply out of control and it is their culture to be abusive and that happens along lines of race. I can give him that it happens across lines of race. I can give him that. But to make the argument that it happens with the same frequency across lines of race, I can't give him that. I think that is a terrible, terrible, dangerous argument that one not only lacks empathy for what's happening, it is a dangerous argument because it is simply untrue. So that 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 is it. And I'll say this uh, too, Matt, because I don't know if you're going to follow up with this question. We may move on to something else. When these things occur also, we consistently hear these arguments about there are more good cops than bad cops. This may very well be true. I am not disputing that. I'm in fact saying that I believe that. I think they're probably more good people than bad ones. But here's the problem with good cops and they have to address this themselves. If there are more, if there are more good ones than bad ones where the good ones have fallen short, they have adhered to that blue code of silence to let the bad ones get away with stuff for way too long. Hopefully one change we'll see now is that good cops will start standing up and speaking and saying, look, there's something wrong here. We usually get it right, but we got it wrong there. And in every relationship, you have to have that capacity. Look, and I know Rachel probably goes through this with you, and that's why I don't <laughs> understand why she's still with you, you know? But if a person, I don't mind being wrong in a relationship sometimes, you know? But I'd be damned if I'm gonna be wrong all the time. You probably try to convince Rachel that she's wrong all the time. So I'm I don't glad know she's not. I'm glad she's not here because if she was, <laughs> she'd be shaking her head and agreeing. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, sure. I'm gonna act like you didn't say that. But uh, you know, the so, thing yeah. is, they know. Here's the thing. I don't care what your profession is. I'm not, I've never been a cop, and I, there are stresses in that job that I can't imagine. With that said, in everything you do, everybody knows they have a coworker that sucks. You know, everybody knows they have the coworker. <laughs> right. Like, you know who it is. I mean, I look at the guy, the Chauvin guy, he had 18, 18 uh, abuse complaints. And I was talking to a cop that's a friend of mine. I'm like, is that like, I'm sure you get some abuse complaints that aren't real. So is that weird that you have 18? They're like, 18's 18. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> we may all get one or two that aren't legit, but 18's 18. So you're right. I mean, yeah. there's a sense that like everybody knows the person in whatever job they do that goes too far. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the problem with police is they have the capacity to harm or kill people. You know, they're, they're, they're given that responsibility. And so, and I want to be clear about this too, because people tend to take arguments out of context. I have a professor from IU coming on my radio show this weekend, right? Um, plug for it, Ricky Jones show. On, uh, Which is 90s. very good. I've been on there. You've had me on there once, twice, actually. Yeah, you've but been you, on twice. You know, I, I make a complaint privately. I haven't said a lot publicly. Maybe I should. That there are very few black talk shows anywhere. And they're especially, though, in states that are not 
like, you know, have a majority black city or something like that. Like black radio hosts just don't really exist. I mean, Kentucky, we've never had a black full-time sports radio host ever. ever. Yeah. Well, well, you and I both work for iHeart, you know, yes. in to my knowledge, I am the only black host. You know, no, no, I'm not. Uh, Jerry Eves is. Yeah, as but well. Jerry Eves, and I love Jerry Eves, but Jerry's a little different. Like, that's a paid show. Like, I, he's not an employee of iHeart. Like, it's a different thing. I'm just right. saying there is not. Not. Yeah. Oh, you're not either. Well, there you go. So I, I, I'm not a full time employee of, of iHeart. I mean, I'm a professor at, at, a, at a school in Louisville. You know, but that, uh, but I just, and it's not, it's not just I art, it's everybody. So I do think yeah, the reason I, I was saying all that is I like your show because actually, unless you're in New York, Detroit, Chicago, places with large black populations, you just don't hear black talk radio hosts. That no, is a white world. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Another manifestation of what? White supremacy. Right. But I want to say this. I have a professor from IU coming on my show um, this weekend and she is making the argument that Policing as we know it should be abolished in social prisons. So it's going to be a really interesting argument, right? An interesting conversation. I like having interesting people on. For me, I don't believe that we can go. I think we're better with police than without police in America as it is constructed. I'd rather live in a world with police right now. So I don't want people to think I'm anti-police, but I am anti-bad police, right? They need to function with some level of responsibility and care. And the, the, the ones who are good, it's really important for them to call out the ones who are bad and force them from their ranks for a few reasons. One, because they hurt and kill people. But two, because it destroys the public trust in the police overall. And the good ones get lumped in with the bad ones, which not just creates this fracture, but it could also put them in danger as they go out in, into a world that sees them as an enemy and as a persecutor. So, you know, it's not totally selfless. It will be fascinating to me. I wish we could find out. Let's take the Floyd situation, the cop that stood and watched and didn't do anything. It would be fascinating for me. We'll never know this if we could really get in his brain and think what was he thinking at that moment? Was it go get him, dude? I'm good with everything you're doing. Was it, I'm scared of saying something because of whatever. I, we'll never know the answer to this question, but I would be fascinated because I bet there are a lot of people, and I'm not saying this guy's it because I don't know this guy, but there are a lot of cops who for reasons of whether it's the blue line or just structural, like that dude's loud and I'm timid and whatever. Like I'd be fascinated to see how he ended up just standing there. Cause in many ways, the three dudes hang, well, not the dudes with his neck, uh, knee on the neck. The other two dudes, they'll probably say, well, we didn't know this was happening, whatever, but that dude knew he's sitting there watching, he's hearing them and he can do anything. And he doesn't, I'd be fascinated what was going through his mind. Well, the other two dudes knelt on him too. You know, that's why their butts have been arrested. The guy who's watching, who's watching is actually going to be the one. The one he's going to be the hardest. He'll be the hardest to convict. He, he, yeah, yeah. He's going to have the most lenient charges. But, you know, I, I compare this, Matt. You know what I compare it to? Uh, it's group think. It's the same type of group think you encounter in fraternities. You know, with fraternity hazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I've seen this where there'll be some guys like, in fraternities, you know, early in my career, I did a lot of work on hazing. And of course, you know, my first two years of college, I went to the U.S. Naval Academy. So I saw a lot of that too and went to a military prep school. So I have that type of background. But 
there'll be people who will say they're anti-hazing and they'll be in these sessions where their fraternity brothers are beating the hell out of people. I mean, really, really torturing people, which also can be deadly. And I've had brothers say, look, I'm not really with that, but it is not my right to stop this brother, right? He, he's in a fraternity. That's his right to handle it the way that he wants to handle it. And beyond that, there's this idea of brotherhood that no matter what, look, we don't really know this pledge, but I know my frat brother. And so that cop, if you really dug down to the truth of it, if he had an honest conversation with you, he would probably say, that was my officer brother. I know Derek. I didn't know that dude that we were arresting. Yeah, you're so probably right. Did, you know, it, so it's, it's, it's this crazy groupthink, man, that can be really, really dangerous. I want to talk about Louisville for a second, because before I moved to Louisville, you know, Louisville's got a weird place in Kentucky. I mean, let's put aside the sports, because I like to talk trash about Louisville as a sports team, but that is significantly different than the city, the, even the university. And in the state of Kentucky, Louisville is part of it, but culturally not really in the sense that you get outside of Louisville and people don't feel that connection to Louisville that they really do, like, say, Lexington. And there are a myriad of reasons. But because of that, it almost sits isolated in a lot of ways. And until I moved there, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know anything about it. So the whole like history of segregation and the Ninth Street Divide, like that was all new to me. And then when I wrote the Mitch Please book and we actually delved into the history of Louisville and you go into the, the white lining and all the stuff that used to happen uh, that not only created the segregation, but reinforced it so that even when even when the city was allowed to be integrated, practically it couldn't be because of the reinforcement of all the provisions. Do you think that part of what's happened with the Breonna Taylor, because you said, like, there's no video in that one. That one's a harder one for people to comprise. It's a little more complicated. But do you think Louisville was just kind of waiting for something? Like, this tension was there so much that it was almost inevitable in Louisville? Let me contextualize the way I see Louisville in relationship to Kentucky. And I think you're right. Kentucky, as people, quote unquote, out in the state, don't feel as connected to Louisville as they might some other places. I don't think they feel as connected to Louisville as they do, say, a Lexington, because they think the Lexington is more like what they are out in the state. Louisville oh, I think that's true, especially the but, eastern half. Yeah. Right. I mean, but but. Louisville is not unique in that respect, okay? Louisville, I would, Louisville is to Kentucky as Atlanta is to Georgia, right? People would say the same, people say the same thing about Atlanta in Georgia. You get outside of Atlanta, Georgia's a very, very different place. You get outside of Louisville, Kentucky's a very, very different place. But people have to understand most of America's rural, you go to most states, you're going to find, you know, two or three major cities and then the rest of towns and rural areas. And so they'll, they'll face challenges that a lot of the rural areas don't as far as race is concerned. Here's what I think happens in, in, in those situations. In the larger areas, in Atlanta, in New York, in Louisville, in Indianapolis, you know, Cincinnati to keep it, you know, in, in our region now, you have more racial challenges because you have more black people who historically longitudinally are one present and are making demands to share in the fruits of the, of the labor from those spaces. In other areas, one, you have smaller populations of blacks. 
And the socialization and the culture of those areas has not really made space for contestations that we see in the larger urban areas. And so what that creates is like this, this false peace in the, the smaller rural areas where people just don't feel that they can say very much. I mean, like I've gone to visit my relatives in, in uh, south of Atlanta. Most of my family is just south of Macon in a, like a triangle of towns, Dublin, Montrose, Dudley, really small towns. I have a flat tire one Saturday down there, right? Visiting my family, I go to Walmart to get the tire repaired and I'm talking to a girl at the uh, register who is black, right? And I'm talking to her and she looks at me and she says, you ain't from here, is you? And I'm using, I'm phrasing it exactly as she did. She goes, you ain't from here, is you? And I said, no. I said, why you ask me that? And she was like, I could just tell. One of my cousins is with me, right, who lives there. And I'm like, man, what the hell was that? And he said, man, you know most of the black folk down here are real scared. And you don't carry yourself like you're scared. And so you have more black people that feel that they have the right to full citizenship and voice in places like Louisville. So what that does, you're right, it sets folk on a collision course eventually. But your view of Louisville is different from mine, Matt. I, you know, coming from a place that has a black mayor since 1973, okay, since I was a child, I don't remember a white mayor in Atlanta. I grew up basically in a black world. I didn't carry the same inferiority complex that a lot of people carry. When I came to Kentucky, you know, both Lexington and Louisville, I saw them pretty much the same. I thought and think that black people in both places that I've experienced are relatively docile and passive, you know? And so I've always felt that Louisville really could move farther, Kentucky could move farther ahead quicker if the black communities were more assertive. But if you talk to people again out in the state, they think the Negroes in Louisville are out of control. <laughs> and I just don't see it that way. I, I, I will say to you, I'm going to at some point take you out in the state because you make these, <laughs> you, you make you these comments. <laughs> yeah, no, you are. Because you make these comments that like, I, I, I think what you said about rural uh, black people is a good, is a really interesting point. And I, 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 I'd actually at some point, probably not in this podcast, like to explore that with you because I think people underestimate how many rural black people, especially in the deep South, but even in Kentucky, I mean, there are pockets in Hopkinsville, Madison, uh, Madisonville, Fleming County, like there are pockets of, of relatively large black populations, but put that to the side for a second. I want to go back to well, let, me, let me quickly say quantity does not equate to quality or confidence or assertiveness. Remember this, in South Africa during apartheid, the white Africana population was never more than 14%, but they were able to seize the tools of control and keep a larger population under siege with terror tactics. So just because you have more black, a larger population, relatively speaking, of black people in a place like Hopkinsville or, or, or whatever, I wonder what their ideology is like. Now, I don't want folks out in the state to get mad with me, you know, all upset, well, he just thinks that we're all bumped. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you have a more prevalent socialization that has a particular uh, uh, cultural setup that people generally submit to in those places. And <laughs> lastly, lastly, let me say this, and this is, this is real. Remember, I'm a writer. 
Okay, I write for uh, the, the Courier Journal, USA Today Network. Some of the comments that go on that website from white people in this state, in Louisville and across Kentucky, are absolutely reprehensible. It displays an ideology that is born of a troglodyte along, as far as race is concerned. And they do it, they say it, one, because of the anonymity of the internet, but they do it because they believe it and they're comfortable with it. And they still do it, right? They still do it. And that's why I don't have much faith on where we're going to go. I, and I, but I would still say to you, and this, listen, this, I can see this because read my comment section. It's very easy to get pessimistic when you only see that. I had Bomani on last week and he and I said, and I believe this is true. A lot of folks in the, I always say this, conservatives don't like groups, they like individuals and liberals like groups, but they don't like individuals. And there are a lot of people who would think they wouldn't like you until they met you. And a perfect example is when you came on my radio show Tuesday. I have to admit to you, I've never had you on that forum. I've always had you on forums, Ricky, where people are seeking you out. I've never had a forum where Ricky ends up in your lap and that's what the radio is. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I was cool with it, but I didn't know what was going to happen. And you killed it. Every part, like Ricky, every person that wrote me and I got hundreds of messages on the text machine were like, well, I didn't think I was going to like him, but, and I think that's, I think that's, there are two ways to look at that. One is the negative. Well, why did you not think you were going to like me? That's Again, what I'm about to ask you. Maybe yeah. this is the optimist in me. The positive is you gave your position, you gave it forcefully, you didn't back down on anything, and yet people heard it. And that goes back to my packaging. For whatever reason, your packaging, some people think in theory wouldn't work, but I actually think it works because people hear your sincerity. That's why I'm an optimist is that I actually think if people had exposure, if a lot of these folks in country areas had exposure to you, you could change their minds, but Imagine they don't. Well, you might be right about that, but, but let, let me say a few things about this. And I, I tell you this all the time, and you don't want to listen when you talk about people liking me. One, let's, let's be clear. I, I, I like the fact that I live in Louisville now, the home of Muhammad Ali. I'm 6'2 and pretty, that's one, okay? <laughs> So, so it's not like people can be turned off by that. But, but seriously, man, I'm a nice guy. I mean, and, and, I, and I believe I'm a reasonable person. I'm not a dude who just runs around screaming at folk all the time. You know, that's, that's not my take. I, I like to present well-reasoned out, thoughtful arguments, one. And two, I'm not beyond listening to people either. I listen to people very, very well and very, very intentionally. So your first question is really, really important, I think. Why is it that these people who have never met me, okay, never met me, never had a conversation with me, come to the game feeling like, oh, I didn't think I was going to like him. But I can answer that because they've never been exposed to someone like you. I mean, I'm a big believer. Someone like me. What, is, what does that mean? No, they have, they have not been exposed. Okay, a couple things. You just said something when you were talking about Atlanta. I think a lot of folks who live in rural areas are not exposed to someone as confident in their positions, as intelligent as you, as not backing down, but also kind. Let me just say, I don't think that's a group of traits that exist in a lot of people, black, white, or whatever, where you can oh. be really, 
No, I mean it. Like, that's why I like you. I mean, that's, there are people I talk to privately that I wouldn't put on my radio show because I know how it would go. And you're not, <laughs> and you're not one of those. But I think exposure is a big thing. I'll give you an example in a, in a different realm. Think about gay marriage. Five, six years ago, gay marriage was the most controversial thing in Kentucky. Kim Davis basically was like, I'm not doing my job so that I don't have to sanction these gay marriages. And everybody acted like the entire world was going to fall apart if we had gay marriage. Five years later, we have it. And I'm telling you, Ricky, nobody even brings it up. They don't even bring it up. Matt Bevin ran for governor and he tried to get that stirred up and it didn't work. He quit because nobody cares. They realized, you know what? Now there actually are gay people in my town. And you know what? I kind of like them. I didn't know they were gay because they hit it for a long time, but I actually kind of like them. I think Ricky, a big part of the problem in a lot of these places, they are not exposed. They're only exposed to what's on TV. What's on TV is explosive always. And they're not exposed to people like you. And if they were, they would look at things differently. That's why packaging matters. Ricky, I know you're going to hate to say this packaging. You're good packaging for the things you're selling. Selling's not the word, but the things you're arguing. No, no, no. I, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I think, you know, one of your shortcomings, Matt Jones, is that you're prone to overstating things. Like well, you true. just, over, Yeah, yeah. Just because Matt Bevin didn't have a selling point on gay marriage, he had a whole lot of other problems. But you, in your eternal optimism, which is a reason I love you so much. I mean, because you will bring me back from the brink sometimes because I can be dark. <laughs> you know, you now want to argue that homophobia has basically been crushed. I didn't nobody say, cares. wait a minute, I didn't That's say, homo listen, I didn't say homophobia is gone. But again, let me go back to my 30% are not changing their mind either way. Uh, Society moves with the 40 in the middle. And five years ago, you could win the 40 in the middle by being anti-gay. And I think five years later, you can't. And that shows a difference in society that I think is worth noting. Yeah, look, my my thought is this, man. I don't think it does any of us any good to discount progress, right? I I I, I disagree with folks who make the argument that America has not changed at all. I don't think that's true. I, I think that you know things are different in the 21st century than they were in the 19th century. I think sometimes they morph and people are more sophisticated with their oppressive tactics, but other places. We've just changed, and that's good. What the, the problem is, people who are not mature in their analysis, they kind of dichotomize this thing. Like, you know, a light switch is a zero-sum game. Like, we're where we didn't want to be or we're where we want to be. We're mm -hmm. really functioning along a continuum. Um, I think it is important that all of us be challenged. You know, I think it is really, really important that all of us be challenged. It's important because we learn the most from the people who think the most unlike us. That's what we learn the most. And that's how we construct a better world. You know, give me the, look, the place where I work has had this problem where black people are concerned. And I'm very, very interested in seeing how they're going to adjust moving forward. And I speak of that place because that's the place that I have been employed for the last 23 years. But it is not unique to that place. They have had a nasty, nasty tendency of elevating black people into positions at that university who are status quo oriented folk who make them feel good, who ain't gonna challenge anything. And the people who are a bit more boisterous, even though they may be talent, more talented, they'll push them to the side because they push them. 
right? And that's the way you grow. But then you come to moments like this and all of those people who are painfully mediocre, right? But more comfort, comfortable and comfort and comforting, it's a problem. So we got to get away from that in society too. I think the great thing about our relationship is that both of us have grown over the years because we challenge one another. But both of us are very confident men. A lot of people would think that both of us are a-holes, <laughs> you know? But I don't think we are. <laughs> I don't. I think people mistake our, our confidence for that. So you you take crap for being my friend. I take crap for being your friend, which means that we are a great duo. Well, let me ask you about friends for a second, because I, when I considered running, I ended up sort of getting in liberal circles that didn't really care about me before, because they're like, oh, that was just that sports guy. Who cares what he has to say? And then when it became a possibility that I might run, a lot of those folks either had to take me seriously or at least were exposed to me. And a consistent, a consistent thing that I consider a positive for a lot of progressives and liberals, oddly, especially white ones, seems to they see as a negative. Which my thing is, I always say, look, I speak to conservatives, the kind of people that we have to win over every day, and I'm friends with them, and I genuinely like them. They're who I grew up with. They're the, they're my people. And a lot of those folks see that as a negative. Basically, how can you be friends with X and then mention whoever it is you want as the person of the day? I don't think that's bad. I think you can be friends with someone and completely disagree with them and bring them along to your position by that relationship. Do you agree with me? Or do you agree with people who say, you know what? When people think like that, you can't be friends with them. I think there are like three things embedded in that. I don't like politicians who change what they believe on a dime, or at least change what they say they believe on a dime to appease populations that are ideologically opposed to them. This is the problem with Amy McGrath, right? She's a person who doesn't believe in anything. And that, that becomes really, really clear. That's a person who will change stances literally within a day, depending upon how public opinion sways. And that's not an exaggeration for folk who, who, who think it is. I'm not exaggerating. We've seen Amy McGrath literally publicly change opinions within a matter of hours, depending on, on backlash, you know, or affirmations or not. And that's dangerous. So I think sometimes people worry about Democrats trying to win races being Republican light and therefore abandoning ideals. That's one. But two, the Democrats themselves don't really have any ideals right now. And they got to figure out who the hell they are. That's a longer conversation for another show. But your third point, I think, is the most important. It seems to me that it's a rather backwards approach to the world. If you say you cannot have respect for somebody and be friends with them because they have a different political ideology. Now, I'm not going to be friends with David Duke, who, you know, <laughs> yeah. is a Ku Klux Klansman. I somehow got on his mailing list, by the way, so I still get mail from David Duke. It is a funny <laughs> you know. Um, but I can be friends with somebody. I talked to a, Republic, a Republican yesterday who called me up. I'll, he'll remain nameless here in the state doing work. But he called me. He's like, you know, Doc, can we have a conversation? Of course we can have a conversation. I tell people all the time, you know, um, the, the current attorney general is Daniel Cameron. 
Daniel Cameron, first black elected statewide. He's a Republican and he is one of my old students. Daniel and I couldn't be farther apart ideologically. I mean, he sees Mitch McConnell as a father figure. Okay, that's how far apart we are. I, me and Mitch, we ain't drinking scotch together no time soon. But, me either. But let me be really, really clear. Even though I disagree with Daniel politically, I love him to death. Love him. If Daniel called me right now and needed me, I would be there for him. And we can, you know, be clear on that. And I can still disagree with them politically. So your idea of trying to be friends with folks, even though they think different from you, I see that as more mature, you know, and humane than I see it as destructive. I think that is a bad approach to the world by folk who feel that way. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And, you know, do you mention Daniel Cameron? Um, I think I've tried and, and have, I think, on some level to be friends with him because I felt like that that if you just leave and say, which is what I think the tendency of a lot of liberals when they see, especially a black Republican like Daniel Cameron, is just to say, well, that dude's a sellout, forget him. And I actually think that's a huge mistake because if you do, that's a good way for, to create an ideologue, to create someone who, well, to create a Clarence Thomas, someone who has really had negative impact, I think, for African-Americans across the country. Daniel Cameron's a nice guy. Daniel Cameron, I think, is a sweet guy. And he seems, at least when he talks to me, and I would assume he is with you, genuinely interested in hearing other opinions. And I think that's a positive. But I get crushed for friendships with him and like Jamie Comer and various people who don't have the same political ideology. And I, it, it annoys me because I always want to say to people, how do you think we're going to win stuff in this state if we just hate the people you're trying to win over? I think, well, I think you can be friends with people and fight them. Yeah, of course you, you can. Know, I, I think, that's, I think that's, that's a serious point. I, I would say that I don't think that just people kind of dismissing a Daniel Cameron or Clarence Thomas of the world, I don't, I don't think that that put them in the ideological place that they're in. I think they had stuff going on already. You know, I think they already had stuff going on. I think being nice, sometimes people can be disarming, man. You know, I met Ward Connolly some years ago. And, and you know, Matt, who Ward, Ward Connolly was one of the biggest proponents of, of anti-affirmative action policy in the country. He's a black guy, right? And so I'm doing a program with Ward Connolly. And I thought Ward Connolly was a hitman for the right, that he was just doing it for the money. We were doing an hour long interview, got about 15 to 20 minutes in. It was on like an NPR affiliate somewhere. And I was younger. And it got about 15, 20 minutes in. I was like, oh my God, he really believes this stuff. But Ward Connolly was incredibly nice. He gives me his phone number. He's like, Ricky, you know, have you been to Sacramento? I was like, yeah, it's been a while, but I haven't, you know, I've been to Sacramento. He was like, if you come to Sacramento again and you stay in a hotel rather than staying with me, I'll be offended. He was one of the nicest people I ever met, but incredibly dangerous, you know? And so we have to be able to separate those things and be able to like, hey, I like Ward Connell. He's a nice guy, but he's dangerous politically. And the same thing with other people. I think we can do both of those things. You know, we can do both of those things simultaneously. All right, let's do some predictions to end this. First of all, do you think Donald Trump gets reelected or do you think Joe Biden becomes president? 
Whew, that's a tough one, man. If, if you would have asked me this in 2016, before the 2016 election, I would have said that Joe Biden would definitely beat Donald Trump this, this cycle. But I didn't think Donald Trump was going to win in 2016 either. I think it is fascinating with everything that we've seen from Donald Trump that there are still people who want to reelect the man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you so, can't believe it's no. close, right? So, so yeah, so I don't, I don't know where white America is going to go, Matt. You know, and I and I, I chose those words very, very carefully. I don't know where white America is going to go because white America is going to decide that. You know, the majority of white voters voted for Donald Trump. Does it offend you that people on my side will say, look, and because and this they say this matter of fact, I have said this not as explicitly as this, but they'll say, look, if if African-Americans are excited and show up, we'll win. Do you think, well, first of all, does that offend you? And two, do you think they will be? Do you think this right here, I argue that this last thing made it to where they'll show up this, this let, last week. Maybe let, I'm wrong. Let me answer the first question. And let me answer the first question with the most powerful answer that I've given this entire hour. I find that argument incredibly offensive when, when, when um, white folk and white politicals say that about African-American voters. It is, an, it, it is, it is incredibly offensive. One, Stop putting the blame on black communities for the destructive and irresponsible political choices that white voters are making. Okay? Again, the majority of white people voted for Donald Trump. The majority of black people didn't vote for Donald Trump. That's, that, that's white people. And white brothers and sisters have to own that. That's not something to get mad at me about. Okay? Well, over half of, of white women voted for Donald Trump. Over 60% of white men voted for Donald Trump across lines of region, across lines of class, across lines of education. So what in God's name is going on with the white community in the country that they would choose a man such as that to be president and many of them want to do it again. That ain't black people's fault. That's your fault. The second piece, black people getting tired of the Democratic Party, okay? Getting really tired of the Democratic Party. When you talk about being, being excited about them, why should we be excited about them? I mean, that's a serious question for Democrats. So Democrats keep asking black people to show up for them. But they're not really showing up for black people outside of the two, four, or six years that they show up asking for votes. And then they go away. They don't push any policy initiatives to speak to the African-American community. They treat us like mistresses, man. You know, that they come visit for booty calls at one, two o'clock in the morning and <laughs> they go away. And, and so, yeah, it's, 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 an, your boy, it's your boy, Charlemagne. Your boy Charlemagne the God said yesterday, I hate calling a grown man Charlemagne the God, but nevertheless, <laughs> said yesterday that he hoped and thought it was possible that Obama was JFK, but that Biden might be Lyndon Johnson and actually get stuff passed because of the moment, even though he's not as exciting and sexy as the person that came before him. Do you think that's possible? Because Lyndon Johnson, like Biden, was known as a legislative master, which is kind of what Biden's theory, like, you know, his selling point. Do you, you think it's possible? Look, man, um, one, one, one time in my life, I met Jasmine Guy after seeing Jasmine Guy on A Different World. I was about to say, from a different world? I, I didn't think, I was like, there's got to be a different Jasmine Guy. He is no, not no, talking no, about a different no, world. No, okay. So, so, so this woman I saw when I was in college was like, oh my gosh, she is fine. And then, you know, I end up meeting Jasmine Guy and spending significant time with her. 
So I said that to say this, anything is possible. <laughs> <laughs> Are you telling me, is, was that your way of dropping in that you dated Jasmine Guy? Is that what I'm I, hearing? I, 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 I didn't say that. I didn't say I dated Jasmine Guy. I said I spent some time with you. I'm saying oh, I wow. Jasmine I've Guy. I've known you for a while and I did not know, what was her name on A Different World? She was the rich girl, Whitley. right? Whitley Gilbert. Whitley Gilbert Whitley, was her that's name. that's right, yeah. Whitley. And you know, so Jasmine Guy and I have always been connected. Her mother taught me English in high school. Her father taught me religion in college, but I never met her. Then I met Jasmine Guy. Anything is possible. I mean, look, man, I'm a kid who was born to a 15-year-old mother and, and yeah. didn't meet his father until he was 35 and got a PhD at 28. Anything is possible. Look, so I don't know what Joe Biden could be. I do know that whatever Joe Biden potentially does in office, if he is elected, he probably won't remember it because <laughs> Joe Biden clearly is, uh, you know, a little forgetful. Right See, now. here's the thing about here's the thing about Ricky. He'll be mean to both parties. That's why you don't have to get just give him a few minutes, and he'll be mean to to, to both parties. Do you anybody who thinks that Joe Biden is not cognitively challenged at this point ain't paying attention? But guess what? Donald Trump is cognitively challenged again. So we work back to the thing that we 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 talked about at the beginning of the show: white supremacy. Here are our choices for president. <laughs> Do, old ass cognitively challenged white men, neither of whom may be completely in charge of their, fa of their faculties. That's our, those are our choices come November. So it's, for me, it's the lesser of two evils. So I'm trying to survive either one of those dudes who probably gonna be drooling in, in their damn Cheerios by the time 2024 comes Do along. you vote? I like, have we, voted. Like, will you I have voted in every election since okay. I was 18 years old. Since I was so, you vote. You will vote in, in the yeah, election. I'll vote, of course. Okay. Now I see. Right now, you're wearing a Kentucky T-shirt. Are we getting close to where you can start cheering for the cats? I mean, I know you say you do. I don't buy it. Like I did the TV show with you. You're always talking trash. Now, when Lamar fumbled, I noticed you got really quiet and all that. But I. But are you going to maybe come to the better side? Hey, let 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 me say this, man. I have always cheered for Kentucky. Now, because I teach at, I work at the University of Louisville, I have had students over the years who played football, played basketball, especially, they're my guys. I'm always gonna cheer for my guys. When there are years that there are no, none of my students on the team, then I'm, I'm pulling for the Cats. I've, Kentucky, and let me be real serious about this. Kentucky gave me an opportunity that nobody did. You know, when I was leaving Morehouse College, the University of Kentucky gave me a Lyman T. Johnson Fellowship. Lyman T. Johnson, legend in the state of Kentucky. They gave me a Lyman T. Johnson Fellowship, which enabled me to just be a student at that school. Gave me the ability to go in and, and ultimately become only the second African-American to get a PhD in political science from the University of Kentucky. And I had a very good experience there. I'm still in touch with my graduate advisors. Shout out to Herbert Reed and Ernest Yanarella, men who, who I love who took care of me to help me grow. My experience was great at the University of Kentucky and I'll always be thankful to that school for what it did for me. So I don't, I don't have any U of L gear. I, I wear gear from Morehouse and UK. Those are the schools I went to. Go Cats, that's right. Uh, and you like Cal too, don't you? I do, I've never met Cal, but I like Cal. Cal seems to me to be, you know, the last honest pimp. So I like Cal. <laughs> 
<laughs> you used that language on Hey Kentucky once. Well, let me say this and I'll finish with this. I want to thank you. I want to thank you for coming on. I also want to say that, you know, you've been a great friend to me, including, and I'll always, I'll always remember this when the stuff went down with Hey Kentucky and they made it to where I wouldn't be the host anymore. You said to me, well, I'm done doing that show. And you know, the, uh, you know, that's, that's friendship. And uh, I didn't expect anybody to do that. I mean, there are people, friends of mine who still do it. And I understand. And I love Mary Jo, who's the host. She's a wonderful friend of mine. But I also, I also remember you doing that at a time that was very difficult for me. You are what a friend really is, in addition to being somebody that I respect a lot. And I appreciate it. Well, let me say, Matt, in closing about about that episode, because a lot of people may not know it. Um, First of all, man, one thing about me, I'm a loyalist. And even if it means that I'm going to lose something, I'm going to be loyal to the people that are loyal to me. You know, we were talking when you came up with the idea for Hey Kentucky. Okay, Hey Kentucky is your show. That's your baby. You came up with that. And people have to understand that. That's not casting aspersion on anybody that's doing Hey Kentucky. But you talked to me repeatedly before you ever did a thing. You were like, Ricky, I'm trying to do this thing. If it works out, would you come on and co-host from time to time? And I was like, sure, man, I can't do it all the time because I ain't driving from Louisville to Lexington all the time. You're like, we'll set up a schedule that works. So you brought me into that space, right? That's something that you set up. And so when they did what they did to you, which let me be clear, was wrong, was dead wrong. It was a sin and a shame. Apologies are still old. It was, it was wrong. There was absolutely no way that I, in good conscience, could continue to go into that space and earn a dime or contribute to it when what had happened to you had happened. And I would expect my friends to do the same. I see that as loyalty, and that wasn't even a choice. So when people ask, hey, you do, I was like, no, nah, man, I, can, I can't come on your show and host like that again. I, I, just, I just can't. And, and, and so I think if, if more of us are loyal to one another, then we'll, we'll have a better world. Ricky, thank you very much. We will do this again very soon. And uh, appreciate, appreciate all you've done through this time, the radio show and this, you're the man. Thank you, bro. Tell Rachel I said hello, man. Yeah.